Anyway, welcome. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that is from Hebrews 10.10. 10. Um, I am still rather new to building Lenten series and Advent series. Um, it is not something most of us do by nature, is, is try to figure out a natural flow of sermons to do during a particular time of year. And for some people that have gone to church their whole life, you may have never noticed that that actually happens every year. Because I don't think I did until I had to notice, that is. But I wanted to just look at Jesus, just the different things about Jesus. Um, and one of the things that came up and that I, I think is definitely worth looking at is Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Because if you ask people who Jesus is, even people that aren't Christians might even say he's the Savior, but they don't know what that means. And that isn't because they're bad. They just don't know what that means. So um, the place I think that answers questions like that is Hebrews. Hebrews is such a, and I don't mean this in any derogatory way, it is such a Jewish book. It is so Jewish. It is written to a Jewish audience. The author has got to be Jewish. It's very Jewish. It looks back at the Old Testament, too. And it further in, impresses on me something I've said for years, which is you need the Old Testament. As Christians, we have a tendency to look at the books Jesus is in. But in reality, Jesus is in all of them. If you are, in fact, a Christian and you believe Christian things, then Jesus is actually in all of them. And without the Old Testament setting up the framework, Christianity makes very little sense. Because you don't understand, you can't understand the system that was set up. You can't understand how we got into the condition to need a Savior or why Jesus' sacrifice was appropriate. Otherwise, it looks kind of bizarre that someone should randomly die and your sins are forgiven. But there's a whole section of Scripture, uh, over half of Scripture actually sets up the entire reason why. And, and you need it. You need it. But Hebrews talks a great deal about the Old Testament. And Jesus being the perfect sacrifice... Because in the Old Testament, you learn that there's an entire series of sacrifices. Some of them are done yearly. Some of them are done daily. Whereby animals die to cover over your sins. Right? Because sin is a big deal. It's not because animals aren't a big deal. Life is precious. All life is precious, which is why it's called a sacrifice. It isn't just called slaughter or butchering, it's called a sacrifice because life is precious and life is valuable, particularly if you're not wealthy. The life of a sheep is incredibly valuable if you're not wealthy. But in order to cover sins, sin leads to death. In order to cover over sins, blood had to be shed. 
It was a big deal. I had a vegan friend of mine ask why God hates animals in the Old Testament because of all the sacrifices. And I said, no, if you're viewing it that way, you've already got it wrong. It isn't because God hates animals. The reasons why sacrifices are appropriate for such a big deal as our sin is because life is precious and because animals are important. It's the only reason that sacrifices were even remotely appropriate. But having covered that now, that people had to kill animals to cover the sins of the people, I'm going to go ahead and start in chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Okay. Laws being the laws of Moses, first five books of the Bible, the laws. That's what I assume they're referring to here. All these Levitical and, and uh, the rules in Deuteronomy as well for sacrifices. The law is only a shadow of the things that are coming. Shadows show you what's there, but they lack the substance, right? Shadows show you exactly what's in the room. If you just see the shadows, you can tell what's there, but it lacks actual substance. Shadows don't actually have substance. And the author of Hebrews, who is unknown, the human author is unknown, calls the laws, all of these rules, all these standards, everything that's supposed to make us holier, to help us be more set apart, he calls them a shadow of good things to come so that they're beautiful and they show God, but they lack substance. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would, they, excuse me, would they not have stopped being offered? If the sacrifices could take away your sins, wouldn't they have stopped doing the sacrifices? It's an interesting question. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Right? Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. I'm always amazed that in Scripture, even in the Old Testament, God says he wasn't interested in the sacrifices as much as the condition of your hearts. He craved not sacrifices, but mercy. For he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
So Christ replaces. He replaces because he fulfilled those offerings. Those offerings with imperfect creatures. Which you had to sacrifice a lamb without blemish. All these animals couldn't be like the three-legged sheep that just showed up at your door. They had to be the best. They had to be a spotless lamb. Jesus was the uh, appropriate sacrifice because he was without sin, because he was in very nature God, because only God had the ability to pay for the sins of man, which I'm sure I've spoke about it before. God actually promised Abraham that he would do it in a roundabout fashion. Day after day, Every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I remember no more. And when these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So um, I have heard a lot of really confusing and bad theology in my life. Is anyone else? And don't point at me. That's not nice. That was a joke. Sorry. Um, I've heard a lot of really confusing theology in my life regarding things like substitutionary atonement, which is Christ dying in our place. That is a really simple concept, honestly. They have fancy names for it so that we can justify paying someone to say those fancy names. But when you think about the substitutionary atonement of Christ, Christ died once for all, right? And something very interesting happens is he says he remembers our sins no more, which is something we're incapable of doing. I remember for years of my life begging forgiveness for sins that I had already asked forgiveness for sins or for those sins but I was unable to believe that Christ would forgive me, which shows a lack of faith in reality. But I know I'm not the only person that struggles to feel like I'm actually forgiven. Well, Christ tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us and that he remembers our sins no more. So what's our hangup? Well, it's us. We are the hangup. It's hard to believe that we're forgiven. It's hard to believe that Christ remembers no more all those horrible things that we've done. But if I could encourage you to have faith in Christ, even if you don't have faith in yourself, because it's hard to have faith in yourself, we know what a mess we are. Usually the people that brag the loudest dislike themselves the most. They're just trying to validate their existence. You don't have to take them down a peg or two, just so you know. Usually if someone is really loud about how wonderful they are, it's because they're trying to convince themselves. 
The hardest thing is to feel at peace with your past. And I bring it up often. I bring up a lot of things often because there's key points in life that it just seems so profound to me. And this is stolen, of course, as most great thoughts are when they come out of my mouth. But Brennan Manning had the question, do you believe that Jesus loves you? Not Billy Graham, not Mother Teresa, but you. Do you believe that Jesus loves you? And then a piggyback question is, do you forgive that? Do you believe that you're forgiven? Because those seem like really easy answers. Like, well, yes. But do you really believe that you're forgiven? Do you believe that Jesus isn't keeping record of your sins once he forgives them? Do you believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient even for your sins? That's a heavier question. It's only a slight rephrasing, but I'm asking you the exact same thing. Do you believe that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient? And if I wanted to make it offensive, so I want you to hear my intent, do you think that Jesus is a liar? Because when I phrase it like that, it becomes very pointed. Is Jesus who he says he is? Or do you believe that Jesus is a liar? Because Jesus says he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that he wishes that none should perish. And he also says he remembers your sin no more. So, is Jesus who he says he is? Is way easier to understand than putting it on you because it really has nothing to do with your abilities. We all know what a mess up we are. We all know what a mess up ourselves are. Some of us don't even like to look in the mirror. There's days some of us have to force ourselves just to shave. It's too much eye contact with that other person. But do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that you are forgiven? Do you believe that God desires you? And I'll assure you that yes, he does. Because he said he does. And that's actually good news. And that's bigger than any mistake I can make. Another very liberating thing I heard someone say is that God expected way more failure from you than you did. And that was a weird thought. God expected way more failure out of you than you did. God isn't surprised by our failures. He knows us. He knows where we're going to mess up. We're the ones that are shocked that we did it. Yet Christ loved us anyway. So much so that he was willing to send his son to die in our stead. Christ, God himself, died in our place because for whatever reason, Christ decided we were worth redeeming. That's amazing. Do you believe that? That Christ decided we were worth redeeming? A lot of people aren't making eye contact with me this morning, and I don't know if it's because I'm droning on or because uh, they don't want to feel convicted. I'm not sure how this is going. 
to be totally honest. Some of you have been up since 3.30 this morning and really aren't ready for these questions. And that's okay. That's okay. But that's really something I feel like we need to do um, when we look at Jesus paying the penalty for our sins. Why would he do that? Well, because he loves you. That seems simple, doesn't it? Faith uh, was defined by someone as, 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 oh goodness, what was it? Faith is the ability to accept that you are accepted. That is a really hard thing to accept that I'm accepted. Does anyone else here struggle with that? Accepting that we're accepted? Am I good enough? No, I'm accepted anyway. I'd like to think, we talk about bringing our first fruits in worship and we're called to do that. We're called to do our best. But we have to understand that our best is very much like a child coming up with their finger painting and handing it to their father. Our best is not going to impress God on our technical ability. It's because it's the best we can do and we love them so much that we took the time to smear around colors and we hand it to them and we're like, God, I made this for you. And anybody that has kids knows that feeling. Unless your kid didn't do that for you, in which case I'm sorry. But most of us that have children have had our kids do something that was beautiful to the point where it broke our heart, just how gorgeous it was. And it wasn't because they were necessarily the best at it. It was because they did it for you, because they love you. And I think if having children, child, singular, has taught me anything about God, it's understanding how God views me. And just getting a little glimpse at that. And it is also painful when your child doesn't believe that you love them because they were disciplined. They think that you don't love them anymore. That's painful. How often do we do that to our Heavenly Father, though? God has abandoned me. No, He hasn't. God has not abandoned you. Unfortunately, we still deal with the repercussions of our own lives. People make choices and nothing happens in a vacuum. One of the most beautiful things that I've come to believe in is free will. Now, I've got some Calvinist cards I'm holding too, so we can talk about that all day and I still am not going to land anywhere, so don't worry about that. But I believe God gives us free will because he wants us to choose to love him. I also know experientially that God didn't let me go when I wanted to. God called me to follow him and he would not let me go. But we have to understand that there are, oh, I'm going to use a very Christianese phrase. Are you ready for it? There were seasons in my life. You ready? The seasons. We always talk about seasons. There were seasons in my life where I behaved like a monster where I did not want to believe in God, where I did not want to follow. 
and I broke my parents' heart repeatedly. If my grandmother would have known what I was up to, it would have crushed her. And the interesting thing about that is I can beat myself up about that. Or I can learn from it because I have the scars from it. Some of them quite literally. Some of them just emotionally. Some of them are very literal. I'm trying very hard not to tell stories about how good a sinner I am, though. I feel convicted about that. They're not my glory days. They're my, I'm surprised that I lived by the glory of God days is kind of what they are. But I'm trying very hard not to tell stories that elevate how wonderfully I sin. But even in my filth, even in my filth, even in my lowest, even in my most depraved, even in my most blasphemous states, Christ died for me in those states. He didn't wait for me to clean up. He died for me then. He saw me then, and he loved me then. And he didn't love me more when I repented. I loved him more. But he didn't love me more. I didn't become his favorite son. He always loved me. And he loves you. And I believe that he loves you exactly the same as he loves me. And it's so easy for us to get that twisted because there are people here that have been faithful followers their whole life. And that is the kind of testimony that just is amazing. It's amazing. I know sometimes they feel bad because they can't play the uh, drastic testimony game with the rest of us. It's amazing when people were followed Christ their whole lives. That's amazing. That is a strong testimony. That's not a weak one. Although there is something exciting about hearing someone stand up and talk about how they got stabbed and all that stuff and were in a bar fight and got three teeth knocked out or whatever. You know, you've all heard those ones. There's something entertaining about that. Is that a better testimony? No. No. Like my grandmother accepted Christ when she was like five. She was a Sunday school teacher. She never had moments of doubt that I'm aware of. Amazing, right? She had like 80 years, a solid Christian witness. For some of us, and again, no condemnation, but for some of us, we have to wonder how many people we steered towards hell before we found Christ. Again, or allowed him to have control of our lives, really. There's a burden there. So whereas we can tell entertaining stories about the mess that we've made, I wouldn't call it a better testimony, nor would I call it a worse testimony. Christ called us all. He called us all, and he loves us the same. We're going to the same heaven. At least I'm planning to see you there, so make sure you're right. No, I mean that, but not the way I phrased it. I'm planning to be in the same heaven with all you guys. Just as I'm planning to be in the same heaven as all those people down at the Baptist church and the ones at the Methodist church and the ones at the CMA church 
And here's the one that's going to shock people, but I know a lot of the folks at the Catholic Church that I'm planning to see in heaven too, and the Lutherans. And when we get to heaven and we have that big forehead slapping moment and, oh, that didn't matter. Oh, that did matter. We're planning, we're all planning to go to the same heaven, aren't we? So why do we live as though they're separate heavens we're going to go to? As though we don't have a perfect sacrifice, as though God didn't love us enough that he died for us so that we can be bitter and backbite and talk about each other and avoid each other, drag each other's names through the mud while we're pretending to share prayer requests. Why do we do that? Why would we ever do such a thing? When Christ was willing to to forgive our sins, which were many, why why would I ever withhold fellowship from another group of people trying to follow Jesus? Sometimes they're wrong, though. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes we're wrong. You can be really wrong about being right. You can be really wrong about being right. We burn bridges way too quickly. There's people that believe things that I will never believe. There's people that worship in ways that make me flat out uncomfortable. So my response is, I probably am not going to that worship service, but I'm probably not going to preach out against it unless it directly contradicts Scripture, right? There's people that believe things about how they live that I don't believe. So what I have to do is I have to weigh out where does Christ call to love someone fall in this? Because I I guarantee you it's pretty high on the list of things Jesus told us to do. Was to love and to be merciful. We're also supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. So truth is important as well. Don't ever throw away truth. Balancing truth and love. That is a tightrope walk if I've ever seen one. In the search for truth, sometimes we get very excited. And for people like me, when that amazing grace comes with uh, a good dose of legalism, you swallow all that up too because it tastes so good. Right? Spoonful of sugar. You see this amazing grace of Jesus, sometimes you swallow up a lot of legalism that goes with it. I'm very susceptible to that. Finding that balance between between truth and love and grace, mercy. I would love to have a great answer for that. How do you do that? Well, you pray a lot and you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, just like the rest of us. None of us are exempt from this. But it seems like a pretty reasonable sacrifice, doesn't it? Having to actually follow the God that loved you and was willing to die for you seems like a pretty reasonable sacrifice. All these minor inconveniences, and that's actually what they are. 
these minor inconveniences of trying to figure out how to love people. We make them far more significant than we should. How do we love these people? Well, by loving them. I don't agree with the way they worship. Okay, well, love them. I don't like how they got to this country. Okay, love them. Vote how you want. Do all this stuff how you want. Worship God. Follow Christ. Act like a Christian. All that other stuff should be secondary at best. We have these weird hierarchies in life. And everything gets mixed together. I'm going to look back at verse 16. This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I am so enamored with this because I am so enamored with the Shema, which is in Deuteronomy 6, which I make my students say every day, which one or two of you can say in Hebrew still probably. Mm -hmm. You guys don't want to do it with me right now, do you? Nope. Who knows? So anyway, but I make my kids say the Shema every morning because it's the focal point of every Jew's life since Moses, and it should be our focal point still with the understanding that we have a completion of this. So it should actually be more meaningful to us even than it was to them. Yet we don't even say it most of the time. I mean, my sixth graders do, but most of us don't, don't even know the Shema. And you can even say it in English. God can speak languages. Isn't that exciting? I knew a, uh, a Hmong pastor who said that God only hears him in, in Hmong, Vietnamese. The reality was is only God understands him in English, probably. So he was praying in Vietnamese. Um, he had a very thick accent. But I'm going to go ahead and read the Shema. And I'm going to go a little further down than I make my kids recite. And I'm going to do it in English. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So these laws of God are supposed to be always before our eyes. They're supposed to be on our hands. So when we reach out to do something, people are going to see there's something different about us. They're supposed to be written on the doorways of our homes. When people look at our homes, they're supposed to see that something's different about them. On the gates, if you have gates, it's supposed to say the laws of God on them. Like when people look at them, they're supposed to be like, oh, someone different lives there. Someone different lives there. Oh, why is he doing that? Oh, look at that. He believes in God. Look at his look at his face. He believes in God. Do I believe that's literal? No, but some people do, and they have special contraptions to, to achieve all this. But you're supposed to be talking about it when you're at home and as you go out and are walking along and you impress them on your children. I know that's out of fashion and out of vogue. Indoctrinate your children. You can tell them the truth. Or you can wait for someone to tell them something else. 
Not that you're infallible. You are not infallible. I'm sorry to break it to you. You may teach them something that isn't true. That doesn't mean you shouldn't teach them. I know I'm dragging on. Just give me a minute. All right. But that Shema is fulfilled in Hebrews 10, verse 16. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Jesus says he's going to do that. Look at that. In the fulfillment of the Shema, it should mean even more to us. And that's worth being excited about. So, this week, more homework. I'm a teacher. It happens. I want you, every day, to ask yourself one of these questions. Do I believe Jesus loves me? And be honest with yourself. Do I believe Jesus loves me? Second one. Is God telling me the truth? Now that may sound like a scary question. But if you can answer the first one with yes, then the second one has to be yes. If you don't believe that Jesus loves you, then what do you believe? Because he says he does. It unravels everything. I'm not trying to make self-centered Christians here. I just want you to understand how grave of a question that actually is. Jesus loves you. And if you have a hard time understanding that Jesus loves you, everything else can unravel very quickly. It's actually fundamental that Jesus tells the truth, that Jesus is God and God tells the truth always. So if you don't believe Jesus loves you, who do you believe God to be? I'm not trying to breed atheists. I'm not trying to make you self-centered, but these are really important questions. Also, that's all I have for you today. If you can do so without pain, can you please stand with me?